Welcome to Crossview Radio, weekly podcast for Wayne County. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We exist to glorify God by exalting Christ and magnifying the gospel for the joy of all nations. Well, one of the travesties of our current generation, and especially the woke movement, is our continued and ongoing violation of Proverbs 18.13. And that verse says rather clearly, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. And of course, this is a perennial problem for people, and uh, I think it's only increased in recent days. The The Bible exhorts us to listen before we speak. And so just consider a couple of other verses, Proverbs 15, 28, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Or Proverbs 18, 17, which says this, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. We have lost the ability to think the best in others. We have lost the ability to dialogue with others. Jonathan Edwards observes that, quote, they love to think the worst of others, end quote. And I'd like to work through uh, a couple of ways in which this is really an epidemic uh, of our modern era. And I'd like to quote a section from the book, The Coddling of the American Mind. And you know that uh, if you've been listening to this series from the beginning, that I've referenced this a few times, and I'll reference it probably just a little bit more in today's episode. Uh, But let me just say that one of the reasons that I love this book so much is because it functions in much the same way as Paul's use of the pagan philosophers in Acts 17. And of course, the key statement made by Paul here is found in verse 28, where he says, "...as even some of your own poets have said." In other words, what Paul is saying is that even your unregenerate, non-Christian philosophers get this point. And really the same can be said for this book. It is written by two unbelievers, two unbelievers who are not conservatives, and uh, they make that point clear. In fact, let me just read to you uh, a section where they kind of unequivocally state the fact that they are not conservatives in any way uh, in this book. They say, quote, neither of us has ever voted for a Republican for Congress or the presidency. Both of us share most of the desired ends of social justice activism, including full racial equality, an end to sexual harassment and assault, comprehensive gun control, and responsible stewardship of the environment, end quote. And I suppose I could probably have an entire podcast episode just dealing with that. But that's not my point so much as to say, look, these guys are not conservatives. Uh, This book, I think, has a unique function because, ironically, it is making so many of the same observations and points that I want to make in this podcast series. And so even uh, liberal pro-social justice advocates see it. Well, what is it specifically that they see that we're going to quote and say, ah, as even some of your own poets have said? Well, let's start with uh, this relevant quote. They say, quote, but it is not a good idea to start by assuming the worst about people and reading their actions as uncharitably as possible. This is the distortion known as mind reading. If done habitually and negatively, it is likely to lead to despair, anxiety, and a network of damaged relationships, end quote. Now, 
what is interesting here is that this is exactly what the social justice movement does. It automatically assumes the worst about everyone, and the assumption is based on skin color. And the media, of course, has not helped uh, with this in any area at all. Uh, The very moment that a shooting happens or something tragic happens, the media immediately talks about motivation, making assumptions, and building a narrative. And all of this is done, of course, before the facts are known. Individuals add to this and throw fuel on the fire by posting about these things on social media without knowing all the facts. Oftentimes, this can be seen in officer-related shootings. If an officer shoots someone uh, who's black, immediately popular culture and media paint the picture of a guilty, racially motivated officer and an innocent black bystander. Now, keep in mind, my point is not the opposite to assume the innocence of the officer. Rather, my point is to not make any assumptions at all until you have all of the facts. Or sometimes you'll have uh, some act that is done, um, and uh, a racist act, and of course um, uh, this will be in the news, and then everyone will discover, oh, it was really a black person that carried out this act in, in an attempt to reinforce the white oppressor narrative. And there's an example of this. In fact, there's a number of examples of this. But uh, in Georgia in September, there was a situation where uh, KKK notes were left in mailboxes threatening to kill people. And come to find out it was a black woman who was doing this in order to reinforce this narrative. Now, my point here is not to adjudicate every police shooting that has ever happened, uh, and I don't want to adjudicate every issue having to do with ethnicity. All I am saying is that we need to wait until all the facts are laid out before we make conclusions. Once again, Proverbs eighteen seventeen is apropos. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. And no doubt, we can all name the times and situations where the media and the world believed their very first impulse, they responded emotionally, and they were wrong. Now, let me just say this. It is okay to respond immediately, but you need to refrain from drawing conclusions immediately, and that's a big difference. But draw conclusions we will do, and to a detrimental effect— There is no presumption of innocence, only presumption of guilt. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this, quote, A man occupying the corner seat in the train because he got there first, and a man who slipped into it while my back was turned and removed my bag are both equally inconvenient. But I blame the second man and do not blame the first. I am not angry, except perhaps for a moment before I come to my senses, With a man who trips me up by accident, I am angry with a man who tries to trip me up, even if he does not succeed, end quote. Lewis says, and this really used to be the norm, that he is more concerned by someone's intent than anything else. If someone trips you up but doesn't intend to, or it's an accident, then you don't get mad at that person. Now, let's go back to the authors of The Coddling of the American Mind for a moment. I want to read their insightful comments on how the modern idea of microaggressions violates the principle of charity or the principle of love. They say this, quote, More generally, the microaggression concept reveals a crucial moral change on campus, the shift from intent 
to impact. This is a big statement here to mark down here, the, the shift from intent to impact. They continue. In moral judgment, as it has long been studied by psychologists, intent is essential for assessing guilt. We generally hold people morally responsible for acts that they intended to commit. If Bob tries to poison Maria and he fails, he has committed a very serious crime, even though he has made no impact on Maria. Bob is still guilty of attempted murder. Conversely, if Maria accidentally kills Bob by consensually kissing him after eating a peanut butter sandwich, she has committed no offense if she had no idea he was deathly allergic to peanuts, end quote. And of course, uh, this is exactly what Lewis is saying. He's not getting offended by someone who accidentally trips him up, but he is by someone who tries to trip him up but fails. The same thing is true, by the way, in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, premeditated murder is treated differently than an accidental killing. If someone accidentally kills someone else, he could flee to a city of refuge and not have to face the death penalty. It is the intent that matters in that scenario. But today, we are offended by everything, and we are perpetual victims, even if there was no ill intent. Today, impact is more important than intent. The authors, once again, of The Colony of the American Mind state this, quote, if a student feels a flash of offense as the recipient of such statements, is he better off embracing that feeling and labeling himself a victim of microaggression? Or is he better off asking himself if a more charitable interpretation might be warranted by the facts. They continue and say this. However, some activists say that bigotry is only about impact as they define impact. Intent is not even necessary. If a member of an identity group feels offended or oppressed by the action of another person, then according to the impact versus intent paradigm, the other person is guilty of an act of bigotry. End quote. To hold someone guilty of bigotry when that was not their intent, is unjust, which is another example of the injustice of social justice. Herbert Marcuse, who was a philosopher who died in 1979, uh, was connected with the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory. And in his essay, Repressive Tolerance, he wrote this insightfully uh, for us to look at to see how they, uh, they are thinking through this. He says, Liberating tolerance, then, would mean intolerance against movements from the right and toleration of movements from the left, end quote. He was advocating for society to be intolerant toward the right and tolerant toward the left. Doesn't sound like he wanted to give things a fair shake, does it? Whether or not uh, people in America know the name uh, Herbert Marcuse, they certainly think in Marcusean ways, tolerance toward my friends and intolerance toward my enemies. The reason they call it mostly peaceful protests is because we tend to grant the most charitable interpretations to those within our own tribe. The issue then is not whether we can be charitable, but who we're willing to be charitable with. The woke suffer from charity bias, the addiction to straining out your enemy's gnat and swallowing your friend's camel. They would do well to heed the counsel from the book of Proverbs in Proverbs 25, 21, that says this, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. This lack of a charitable spirit can be seen in Tim Keller's recent comments on the statement of, uh, on social justice in the gospel. 
This is how the lack of a charitable spirit has worked its way into the church. For those of you who are not aware, this statement, also referred to as the Dallas Statement, was written a few years ago as a response to the social justice movement. You can go to statementonsocialjustice.com and see everyone who's signed it. And of course, you can find my name there. I did sign this document. Tim Keller did not sign the document. And here is what Keller had to say about it. He said, quote, What concerns me most about it is not so much what it's saying, but what it's trying to do. It is trying to marginalize people who are talking about race and justice. If somebody starts to go down it with me and says, would you agree with this? Would you agree with this? I would say you're looking at the level of what it says and not at the level of what it's doing. And I do think what it's trying to do, what it's really trying to stay is, say is don't make this emphasis, don't worry about the poor, don't care about the injustice, it's not really that important. That's what it's saying. Even if I could agree with most of it, I don't like it. And that's and what it's doing is that I don't like. End quote. Now, this is a lack of charity because Keller is making assumptions about the motivations of the signers. He is advocating speech act theory, and that is essentially, in this context, viewing impact as greater than intent. That's why he says, I don't care what it says. All I care about is what it does, uh, not what it says. And this is what the authors of The Coddling of the American Mind warned us against, that people are increasingly ignoring intent and concerning themselves only with impact. Now, what if we were to judge everyone like this? What if Tim Keller himself said something that offended me or that hurt me? Wouldn't Tim Keller want the opportunity to say, whoa, 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 hold on a second. What I meant was this. This is what my intent was. Why can Keller not extend this same level of charity to the signers of the document? Especially since just a few years ago, he would have stood on the same platform as many of them and preached the gospel alongside of them. They used to be friends. Why not extend charity to them? But he doesn't do that. He says that if words offend someone, they need to be judged on that basis and not on the basis of what they say. Imagine taking this approach to the Bible. What if we dismiss the portions of the Bible that offended me? What if I said, I'm going to look at the Bible, not based on what it says, but based on what it does. And oh boy, I read that and it offended me. Well, we would dismiss the entire Bible if that was the case. Words must be judged on what they mean, on something objective, not on something subjective as as somebody's feelings or their response to that statement. And this is what we saw in the podcast on authority. This is postmodernism that has crept into the church. Postmodernism in literature tells us that the reader brings meaning to the text. And that really is what Tim Keller is doing. He is saying, I'm going to allow the uh, reader to bring meaning. And so if this does something to this reader, then of course um, it needs to be dismissed. He's saying that the words cannot be judged by themselves, but only after they have been interpreted and responded to by individuals. The Bible has meaning apart from what people bring to the Bible. Truth is objective, not subjective or relative. All right, let me give you another example. 
This one, again, from uh, the book, Kylie and the American Mind. And uh, it's a little bit of a lengthier quote here, <clears throat> but um, I think it was a helpful one, uh, talking about a college student from Claremont McKenna College. And it tells a story of an interaction between this college student and uh, one of uh, the, the staff members there. And so uh, let me start here. Uh, it says this, quote, A student named Olivia whose parents emigrated from Mexico to California before she was born, wrote an essay in a student publication about her feelings of marginalization and exclusion. Olivia noticed that Latinos were better represented on the blue-collar staff at CMC, including janitors and gardeners, than among the administrative and professional staff, and she found this realization painful. She wrote that she felt like she had been admitted to fill a racial quota. She suggested that there is a standard or a typical person at CMC, and she is not it. Uh, she says, our campus climate and institutional culture are primarily grounded in Western, white, cis-heteronormative, upper-to-upper-middle-class values. In response to this essay, which Olivia sent in an email to CMC staff, Mary Spellman, the dean of the students at CMC, sent her a private email, noted as a private email, two days later. Here is the entire email. Okay, so now the authors are quoting Mary Spellman and her email response. It says this, Olivia, thank you for writing and sharing this article with me. We have a lot to do as a college and community. Would you be willing to talk with me sometime about these issues? They are important to me and the dean of student staff, and we are working on how we can better serve students, especially those who don't fit our CMC mold. I would love to talk with you more. Best, Dean Spellman. And the authors continue to say this. What do you think about Dean Spellman's email, cruel or kind? Most readers can probably see that she was showing concern and reaching out with an offer to listen and help. But Olivia was offended by the dean's use of the word mold. She seemed to interpret it in the least generous way possible, that Spellman was implying that Olivia and other students of color do not fit the mold and therefore do not belong at CMC. This was clearly not Spellman's intent. Olivia herself had asserted that at CMC there is a prototype or pattern of identities that she does not match, and as Spellman later explained, she used the word mold to express her empathy with Olivia, because it's a word that other CMC students use in conversations with her to describe their sense of not fitting in. Okay, the authors <clears throat> then continue to observe this. They say, there is a principle in philosophy and rhetoric called the principle of charity, which says that one should interpret other people's statements in their best, most reasonable form, not in the worst or most offensive way possible. Had Olivia been taught to judge people based primarily on their intentions, she could have used the principle of charity in this situation. If a student in Olivia's position was in the habit of questioning her initial reactions, looking for evidence, and giving people the benefit of the doubt, that student might get past her initial flash of emotion and avail herself to an invitation from a dean who wanted to know that she could, uh, what she could do to address the student's concerns. That is not what happened. Instead, Olivia posted Spellman's email on her Facebook page about two weeks after receiving it with the comments, I just don't fit that wonderful CMC mold. Feel free to share. Her friends did share the email, and the campus erupted in protests. There were marches, demonstrations, demands given to the president for mandatory diversity training, and demands that Spellman resign. 
Two students went on a hunger strike, vowing they would not eat until Spellman was gone. In one scene, which you can watch on YouTube, students formed a circle and spent over an hour airing their grievances through bullhorns against Spellman and other administrators who were there in the circle to listen. End quote. Uh, My two-year-old has better behavior than these college students. The problem with colleges going woke is that the students learn their lessons all too well. If professors at universities put their students on the woke train, you better get buckled up because it's going to take them places they're not going to like. These students learn their lesson well. And what is fascinating with this story is that the authors end it with this statement. Authors, again, of the Colony of the American Mind, they say it is as though some of the students had their own mental prototype, a schema with two boxes to fill, victim and oppressor. Everyone is placed in one box or the other, end quote. This whole situation could have been dealt with privately and literally in a matter of seconds. Olivia could have simply said, I was offended by your email for these reasons. And the dean could have said, man, I'm sorry uh, for saying that the way that I did. I didn't mean this. I meant that. And then Olivia could have moved on. But these kinds of dramatic and public executions reveal that our culture has lost its charitable spirit. Add to this the fact that nobody gets brownie points for private confrontation anymore. Again, the authors state this. The combination of common enemy identity politics and microaggression training creates an environment highly conductive to the development of a call-out culture in which students gain prestige for identifying small offenses committed by members of their community and then publicly calling out the offenders. No one gets points, no credit, for speaking privately and gently with an offender. In, offender. in fact, that could be interpreted as colluding with the enemy, end quote. Now, biblically speaking, and according to Matthew 18, we are called to keep confrontation as private as possible for as long as possible. Now, of course, there is a point where sin does become public, and it is stated to the church, but that is only as the last possible resort uh, of all options to deal with the sin uh, a- after all those options have been uh, have failed. Call-out culture, then, flies in the face of Matthew 18. It is everything that Scripture is not. It makes mountains out of molehills 95% of the time, and I'm convinced that its function is to declare how righteous you are, all while, de- while demolishing everyone who is not precisely aligned with your values. Call-out culture is kind of like the Pharisee who prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, bigoted, Christian, cis-heteronormative, homophobic, transphobic, or even like this dean of students. I protest at two peaceful protests per week. I give tithes of all that I get to BLM, and I post all of my grievances publicly on TikTok. The lack of a civil discourse on this topic is a rather unfortunate consequence of the drift away from a biblical worldview. The farther we drift away from the Bible, the less civil we become as a society. Let me say that one more time. The farther away we drift from Scripture, 
the less civil we become as a society. The drift away from civility is a direct result of our drift away from God's word. The world doesn't just hate the quote-unquote spiritual things that come from God. They hate all the things that come from God, including absolute truth, logic, laws of science, of course we know this because people don't know what a woman is anymore, and absolute laws of morality. Because God's word demands civil discourse, it is no surprise that our culture increasingly hates civil discourse. And let's look at perhaps a couple of Bible passages in light of these observations and see what scripture says on how we ought to communicate with one another and how we ought to have a charitable spirit with one another. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says, love believes all things. Now, of course, this does not mean that love is gullible. We know that we uh, ought to be wise and discerning, but it does mean that love gives others the benefit of the doubt, something that woke culture is opposed to. In his commentary on this verse, John MacArthur says, hatred believes the worst, love believes the best. And so the next time you hear a news story about some sort of racially motivated situation, stop and think for a minute and give the benefit of the doubt. Maybe it was racially motivated, and maybe it was not. And maybe think before you post something on social media, at least any sort of conclusion. A second biblical principle is actually engaged or uh, ingrained in American law, or at least it is supposed to be. That is the principle of the presumption of innocence. Now, it is all over the, the Old Testament, but I want to bring up uh, a New Testament verse that teaches this, and that is 2 Corinthians 13, 1. And Paul says, this is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Biblically speaking, it is right to presume someone's innocence rather than presume his guilt. William Blackstone, in his commentaries on the laws of England, wrote this in the 18th century. He said, quote, it is better that 10 guilty persons escape than one innocent suffer, end quote. This, by the way, is now referred to as Blackstone's ratio. And this same ratio of 10 to 1 is found in the book of Genesis, where Abraham is pleading for the city of Sodom because his nephew Lot is there. Abraham kept asking, will you destroy the city if there's 50? 45 righteous, etc. He finally gets down to 10, and we read this in Genesis 18.32. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Blackstone's ratio is, in principle, ingrained in American law. Whether it's always carried out is another thing entirely, but there is a presumption of innocence that we are supposed to exercise. And the reason that Lady Justice is wearing a blindfold is because things like ethnicity, wealth, status, and so on are not supposed to sway justice. Everyone, regardless of ethnicity, is to be presumed innocent unless proven otherwise. So let us pray for the return of a charitable spirit in American culture. Charity is a Christian virtue, and it's on the endangered species list. And the only way to see the return of a charitable spirit is to see a return of Christianity. Thanks for listening to Crossview Radio. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We meet Sundays at 10 a.m. To find out more about Crossview Church, visit us online at crossvieworville.com.